Participate, engage, speak out, use your voice to be an effective advocate. The Voices in Advocacy podcast examines the diverse landscape of advocacy, exploring the ins and outs of building influence, driving change, and creating champion advocates. It's now time for the Voices in Advocacy podcast with your host, Roger Rickard. Good day, all, and I hope you are enjoying season three of the Voices in Advocacy podcast. I'm Roger Rickard, president and founder of Voices in Advocacy, where we work with organizations to inspire, educate, engage, and activate your supporters by turning them into effective, influential advocates. And this is the podcast dedicated to the art of advocacy. This podcast is for the people that work and engage in advocacy efforts, be it for their organization, be it corporations, associations, trade organizations, and nonprofit cause groups. Now, let's get started. On today's show, we speak with Devin Gray, Senior Director of Advocacy Capacity Development at the American Institute of Architects. Now that was a mouthful. He is an advocacy strategist and leader in political affairs with demonstrated record of leading PAC and grassroots campaigns that ignite action on a range of political issues for the past 20 years. Devon is uh, passionate about building strong advocacy organizations that empower members' voices. And I love tying that together with voices in advocacy. So in 2020, Devon was named the National Institute of Lobbying and Ethics Top 20 list for his association advocacy work. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to welcome Devon to today's show. Welcome, Devon. Good to be here. Glad to be with you. Oh, I am very stoked and excited to have you with us today uh, based on your background. Now, I want to begin, first of all, by thanking you. I want to thank you for your service as a first lieutenant while serving in the U.S. Army Reserve. I thank you, sir. Not a problem. Thank you for uh, even mentioning that. Uh, it, it seems so long ago now when that happened. It, it seems like a different lifetime, but uh, enjoyed to have an opportunity to serve in the, in the, in the military and uh, learn a lot. And actually, a lot of the things that I've done in advocacy, I've used some of those strategies and tips and things they taught me there to be used here. Well, great. We'll get into that. Thanks. Uh, so let me just start off by throwing you a, a, a nice softball here. <laughs> Why is political influence important? Ah, <laughs> that's not much of a softball as many. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, a, it's an interesting thing. I got into this business, um, gosh, like I said, 20 plus, it seems 20 plus years ago. And the reason I got into it was because I was working uh, at the White House, actually, at the time, and really what intrigued me about advocacy and lobbying and, and government affairs and all those things, while I was there, I was able to work on a healthcare issue that directly impacted my grandmother. Uh, she was in a nursing home facility at the time and had to work on, and they allowed me to do this as a part of my workload there because we worked on uh, healthcare issues. Back then, the specific agency was called HICFA, Healthcare Finance Administration, now it's called CMS but got to work on getting funding for that nursing home. And it, it, the bug bit me, if you will, uh, or it, it just, it got to the point where I saw firsthand 
the power of what happens when you get people engaged and involved in something they care about. Right. And, you know, that would be what I would say is the importance of political influence in this day is finding something you care about that you want to be influential about. Uh, and we can get a little bit more into that a little later, but it's extremely important to find what do you care about and, and then really engaging. And with, if you think about it, it can be something as simple as you want a stop sign put in your neighborhood to you want legislation passed on health care. It's about finding that passion. So I would say that's the importance of political influence is getting it and then being that influential based on your passion. Devon, you're so correct. A, personal. When things become personal, it's much easier to step forward, whether that's personal dealing with your family, yourself, uh, other loved ones, uh, your business, your industry, your job. I mean, all those things make it personal. And when you have that ability to make it personal, you can, you can be incredibly uh, effective with that. So any ideas on what you think, and, and this is a big wide open question, what you think uh, better influence looks like? Better influence, and you know, it, it depends on whether you're talking about an organization or an individual. For let's just start with the organization, because I know most of your listeners probably are working for an association, nonprofit, something on that order. I would say what it looks for is not always getting the end result being uh, a bill on the president's desk, or uh, you know, th those things don't happen very often. As we know, I remember um, doing something a while back, uh, a talk where I talked about how less than one percent of all bills actually become law. So I would say progress. If you're able to show at the end of the day, at the end of the week, at the end of a legislative session, we've made progress on something that is important to you in your everyday life as you're doing your job, if it's an association. Uh, individually, even speaking, saying that I had an impact on something that was important either to my, my community and yes, your profession or whatever the case may be, and we've seen the info, we've seen the result of that. And that's what keeps people engaged uh, is letting them know the results of their labor. Uh, that really usually gets people to say, okay, what can I do more? How can I do more? And that's when we introduce some of the other ways to get involved in advocacy. You know, uh, the, the answer before you said, it, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're dealing with things at a White House level or whether you're dealing with things like, you know, getting a new stop sign in your neighborhood. Uh, you know, you're absolutely right. And it reminded me, quite frankly, there, there are only 537 elected officials at a federal level in D.C. The president, and the VP, Senate and the House. That's it. That's it. Yet. Now, think about that. There's 537. And yet by a multiplier of a thousand there are a thousand other elected officials for every one official in Washington that's elected. There are 537,000 elected officials in the United States. It's an amazing thing. You know, and so when people say often, well, you know, I can't really influence anything because I don't know my U.S. Senator. Right. Well, you know what? You can influence an awful lot because you know the guy that lives down the street that happens to be elected that may go to your church or go or go to your synagogue or uh, the, the grocery store, the movie theater, whatever near you, yeah. you know, you can even take you one further than that, though. I, I would even say, for instance, if you're in a homeowners association, you can make an impact there. Your, your voice can be heard just as much on, on something as simple. And I would even say more so 
because with federal legislation, you know, there's that that need for a trickle down effect to even see even the smallest result of what you've done. But at a, even at a homeowners association, city council level, you can make that impact and see the results of it immediately. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, down to any district anywhere. Uh, and and by the way, the people that run the homeowners association are elected. They're just not on the uh, the county or city ballot. They're they're uh, they're elected in different ways usually. So tell me, uh, we're here talking, you know, you represent the American Institute of Architects. So, so tell me what is the mission mm-hmm. of the architects? Let's, let's throw that out so people have a much better idea of who you serve. Well, you know, we have roughly, I would say, obviously we're going through our membership drive right now anywhere, I'd say between 92 and 95 a thousand architects that are out. There's a lot of architects that are out there. And, uh, you know, our job is to obviously represent their, their interests either at that local, federal, or state level when it comes to uh, legislative or regulatory activity on the advocacy side. And it's really to promote the profession and show it as more than just um, uh, something that people do as far as that's their job. It's, it's, it's an impactful thing on the communities that they live in. Uh, obviously, when you think about architecture, that includes pretty much everything from where you're working in to where your kids go to school in to where, uh, you, you know, just about anything. And, and, and that is the amount, the amount of impact that an architect has on a community. So it's really kind of showing that to folks and letting them know exactly uh, what that's about. When I say that, uh, people, I mean, you know, your elected officials, the staff that work with them. And it's an education process to let them know exactly who we are. So. Part of my job, um, and as you had mentioned before, advocacy capacity development, say that five times, uh, is to expand the capacity of people understanding what it is we do or what it is they do, I should say, and how we represent them uh, in different different levels of government. You know, I was going to ask that question. I mean, that is a mouthful of a title, and uh, I've never really come across that title. So you must have been very creative when you asked for that title. Uh, well, I mean, you know, capacity building has been a word that we've had in our uh, in, in our shop for a while. Uh, I originally was there as the political uh, programs director and overseeing the PAC and various things that, that, that were associated with that. But our capacity building is to take a look at our states, uh, to take a look at the advocacy that happens at that level. Because really, when you think about it, that's where a lot of people really wanna get engaged. Again, they're seeing the impact more from their state and their local level. So it's to expand our ability to do what we do, whether it's tools that are needing, training that's needed, resources. Uh, from my days in the army, we would consider that uh, expanding the ability of the warfighter and making sure right. that they're able to conduct their missions better sure. and more effectively. Yeah, better prepared and uh, and, uh, I love that. Uh, and in fact, uh, the next question actually may fall right into where it came from, from a military standpoint. I did some research for this interview and I came across this acronym, STEAM. Which one did I couldn't, you said TEAM? STEAM. S-T-E-A-M. Now that's one I haven't heard in a while. Well, that's uh, that's actually on uh, the uh, American Institute of Architects website. Oh, I and thought you were talking about the military. Oh no, no, no! I'm just ah. saying that the military uses acronyms all the time. I I, I figured uh, that maybe the creation of this acronym came 
from past military days, but it's steam. Can you tell people what steam means? I am, you know, is, is that in that wasn't a part of is that a part of our advocacy portion of that? I have not seen that actually. That's on science, there. technology, uh, engineering, architecture, and math. So you're referring more to like what's, what we used to call STEM, right? Yeah, but it's been translated to add the A in there for uh, architecture. So it's STEM with an A for STEAM, which is uh, adding architecture into that mix of- I got you, I see what uh, you're talking about. Core competencies. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Now, I mean, a lot of, and, and this comes from the fact that with, you know, a lot of the students that are coming out of college these days that are taking uh, certain courses that are preparing them to become architects, and really uh, making an emphasis in the educational side of things to get more students to, to take those courses, to get more into the pipeline, uh, to be make sure we have more uh, architects that are out there and ready to serve and ready to be at architecture firms. So it's really kind of opening up. Now that's in a different part of our advocacy department other than what we do as far as advocacy relationships. So that's in another department over there, more the education side. But it really kind of opens up the fact that we're recruiting more, if you will, of getting more people to come into that atmosphere, if you or, or that educational background, I should say, of yeah. that science, the technology, the engineering, if you will, and the mathematics. So, so you brought up students, uh, and I'm going to jump to something I was going to ask a little bit later on. Do you have any special programming for young architects? new members, as I know many organizations do focus on educating those new young members to the organization to try to get them on board for advocacy early on. Sure. You know, when I was over on the political, on the more of the political side, political program side, we did work with a lot of our young architects. We do have young architect programs here at the AIA uh, to begin to be able to recruit them into being more involved on the advocacy side. Uh, contrary to popular belief, which tends to be in our country that there's this thought that more young people are not as involved in, in politics or advocacy, that's actually not very true. It's, it's a matter of engaging them where they are. For instance, uh, one of our issues that we are very much involved in is the student debt issue. And so obviously an issue like that really kind of connects with them. So we do have an issue set, if you will, of things that can connect a little bit more with that younger population and get them to be engaged. As a matter of fact, I remember last year, we did uh, a member of Congress uh, who spoke for um, us, who actually was at, at, at one of their, their meetings last summer and had great response from that. And so it's, it's really more about finding what they're engaged and involved in. And that's what we've been doing uh, and continue to try to do as much as possible. You know, I do, I, I had done a lot of that and I absolutely agree with you. Uh, the the younger people want to be very engaged and very involved. They uh, uh, they're they're not walking away from it. They just aren't necessarily sure they know how to do it do it right. Uh, and I have done uh, and I kind of stumbled into this many years ago. By the way, I mean uh, I was asked to do a national keynote for a young farmers and ranchers conference of the American Farm Bureau. And which has led to, they have those all over the place. And so they, they really do uh, special training for their youngest members to get them engaged and involved uh, in, in the advocacy process. That's 
kind of where that stemmed from was was asking and I and when I asked that question of a lot of organizations they do they 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 put together some special programming so that the young uh, the young members of their organization get involved with uh, with advocacy early on so I think yeah that, we actually have a, a political program uh, that's a part of our fundraising for for the pack uh, where we have a team where that the young architects actually have their own team that they form to help raise money for the pack but also it's uh, it provides an opportunity to get them more involved in the educational side of the issue of understanding the issues we're doing and and how they can get engaged in that but at the same time getting involved with the pack because uh, no matter what trade association I've been or, or organization I've been a part of the pack is usually the one that you really want to get them engaged in early because if you get them early you're going to keep them later as their professional career grows and uh, you have the opportunity to really get them connected and involved. I, I, I couldn't agree more with with uh, with what you're saying. So tell me about, and hopefully in your position, you know uh, a little bit more about this. Tell me about the AIA Citizen Architect Program. Ah, well, the Citizen Architect Program is more about um, finding that person who is a little bit more engaged, uh, or I shouldn't say a little bit more engaged, but they're really, they kind of connect with not only the issues, but they connect with the fact that they want to engage, whether it's not just in going to the Hill or involved in that, but just other aspects of within the, uh, within the uh, community of architects where they're very engaged, they're leaders, they're serving on committees, they're doing the other things um, that you want your advocates to uh, get involved in. Advocate, I mean, being an advocate is not always just about being on the Hill and it's not always right. just about doing the other things. It's the things that we are looking at is what other things are they engaged at, involved in and doing that shows that they're going to be a leader in the future. Right. And once you can kind of have an idea of that, uh, then you're, you're trying to get them more engaged in the actual uh, advocacy work that we do. Yeah, and I, and I think the fact that you spotlight each one of them and you give them a place on the website that gives them an opportunity to, to kind of uh, beat their chest a little bit about the, the good things that they're doing. And it shows others different ways of being that good citizen for the architecture community. Uh, I, I love that. So how do you go about recruiting new grassroots advocates? Well, it's, there's a couple of ways. Um, we actually have some, some platform tools that we use, communication tools that can kind of tell us whether somebody, this is their first time or is, have they been doing it uh, multiple times or they're the repeat offender, or are they kind of a person that this is just, this issue was is so compelling to them, they wanted to get involved. So that's one way of really kind of connecting and finding out whether this is somebody new and whether it's, you know, why did they do what they do? So you kind of take a, we've taken a look at issues, what that issue was and when did it come out? Was it something that was hot in the news? Different things like that to kind of see is this a person that's really ready to connect for the long term? So we've been doing that a lot lately. So are you referring to using the technology tools that tell them to take action and ask them to either write or to tweet or is that what you're referring to there? Exactly. Yes, exactly. And All not right. only that, but you know, now there, there's, there's the traditional things. And obviously with COVID, we haven't been able to do some of those, which are in-person meetings. Uh, right. That obviously having the ability to have an annual meeting is is huge because that you're having large amounts of traffic. Uh, last one we had that I was at was uh, a year, well, two years ago, Not I can't believe that. Uh, it was in Las Vegas. 
uh, and there were thousands of people there. And so that's obviously an opportunity for us to gather folks and to really begin to engage, get information and get them involved. You, on a normal basis, mm. in a normal time frame, I'm not <laughs> gonna mention that B word right now, but in a normal time frame, do you hold a, a, a fly-in uh, on Capitol Hill? Yes, when I actually, I've been here at, um, <clears throat> at AIA now for three, it'll be actually three years on, uh, three years on, on Friday, well, tomorrow, oh, Friday, it'll be three years Friday. So um, yes, we, we normally would have a fly-in. We did have one the year before COVID, COVID struck, had about, I want to say it was about six or 700 advocates that were in that were coming to the Hill. Uh, and that's, you know, we, we would have the, the normal briefings, the, the legislative briefings and the talking with them about the member of Congress that they were going to connect with and, and have meetings and how they can follow up and all those wonderful things. So we usually would. This past year, uh, actually not past year, but this past February, we had an online or a virtual flying. Virtual. So yeah, and that was that was still about six or seven, well, close to, I'd say about 600 and 630 members or so that actually showed up for that event uh, just virtually and uh, went very well, went very well. Yeah. So we still see the same people acting. Yeah, yeah. So when you're doing things like that, do you have any other training programs that you put in place to make the volunteers, you know, know and understand? And I, 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 and I know typically when you do a fly-in, you know, there's someone there saying, okay, now make sure you're on time. Yeah. Don't diss the, don't diss the staff that are 23 years old, you know, <laughs> Don't chew gum. Don't ask anything political. That whole list of the 14, 16, 18 things you tell them not to do and the five things yep. you tell them to do. But outside of stuff like that, do you do any other type of programming within the organization, whether that's even at the state level or chapter level, to where you try <laughs> to uh, educate them to be uh, a more effective advocate? I would say more of that work is happening before, like for instance, this year with it being virtual, a lot of that happened where we would send out issue papers and all those different things and brief them about, you know, how the meeting's gonna go. And, and a lot of that was done uh, in, in the, the virtual space, obviously through emails. And I'm trying to remember if I recall, and I'm trying to go back in my mental Rolodex here, I think we did a video actually to kind of begin to give them that idea of here's what to expect, here's what's going to be happening, uh, and kind of walk them through this process. The, the challenge, or let's say one of the biggest challenges to doing it in a virtual space or virtual environment is you have different technology uh, and different players, different equipment that, that folks have. And also you run into the bandwidth issue of, I mean, literally the bandwidth issue uh, depending on where they are. So you're running into talking more about those kinds of things rather than just spending a lot of time on the issue briefs or things of that nature. You still get those questions, but now it's more about how do you log in? How do you click this, go there, wait here until you're accepted into the meet, that kind of stuff. So, and for the vendor that we use, they even had a help desk to help with that. So that helped a lot in this virtual space, but, um, it, it, it worked out. It worked out very well, actually. Yeah, it, it gets it can get quite complicating, uh, and and particularly when you have people popping in and out yeah. uh, at different times. So how do you uh, you know you represent the American Institute of Architects? 
how do you, and I was, when I was looking, if I can count right, which I'm not sure I could because it went on and on and on, you, you've got a, a, about 200 U.S. chapters. Well, that's the U.S. and international. Yeah, that's worldwide. There's 200 yeah. chapters. You think about we, we have chapter, well, what we call components or state components in each of the 50 states there. So, and then you have some local chapters depending on where they are. So yeah. it's a large network of people. Yeah. So how do you reach, and is it your responsibility to reach out to those to help, you know, educate them, A, about the issues and what's going on uh, from an advocacy standpoint at the national level and, and, and about, you know, helping them with maybe some programming on advocacy and training and those kind of things? Yeah, I mean, as far as what I do here is I, obviously I'm, I'm focused more on the states and making sure that we are getting the, for instance, some of the, the vendors that we work with, we want to make sure they're very well trained at the state level, how to use those platforms themselves. Uh, one of the things that I, I find, and this is in any association that you work with, when you're working with state, com state components or state chapters or whatever they would call them, uh, is try to make sure, depending on their size and their ability, that they're as independent as they possibly can be and making sure that even though they're gonna have access to the tools and the training and all those things is trying to get them to be as independent in their way of expanding that capacity. For example, uh, we're setting up right now, even um, as we're doing a lot of work with working with our states, a wiki page that will give them a lot of the information an internal wiki page that will give them a lot of information how to use these tools, little bite-sized videos and doing things like that uh, that they can digest pretty easily and making sure that they have the tools they need so that when they're running their campaigns, it's not about what does national know, because we're not always the one that can educate them. A lot of times they're educating us and, and, we're getting, and we're getting very good intel from them about what's going on in their state, but also what's going on with advocates and then sharing that information and working and collaborating with them uh, on things that are going on nationally. For example, if our PAC is doing an event and looking to find you know, people who can attend that event, even if it's virtually uh, in those states, working and collaborating with them to find those individuals and, and connecting. And again, that's a part of that sort of expanding that architect who's a citizen, but also expanding them into an advocate. So you've mentioned technology an awful lot and tools that help keep your advocates engaged and, and clarifying that. Um, Philosophically, <laughs> is advocacy technology taking over personal grassroots engagement? That's a really good question. Uh, I would say it can, not that it is, but it can, if you don't still continue to make personal touches. There's, there's, you know, you can, you can have all the tools and things online. That's just making it um, more convenient now. And especially uh, as I like to call them, change accelerators come up like a COVID situation. That's obviously an unusual thing, but it advanced us to the point where we had to have these tools. Now, that does not take you away from personal communication, picking up the phone, sending the email, or just having that, that personal one-on-one -on -one teams meeting with somebody. And I try to do as much of that as I possibly can because you do want to keep it from becoming um, not only just so much a way to communicate, the only way to communicate is, you know, you don't want that to happen. And so, you know, you do want to be able to talk to that, uh, the leader of that particular state or the leader of that local chapter and disseminate information down from them 
to whoever it is you're trying to, to talk with as far as the individual members? You know, in talking to a lot of people that, that do what, what we do uh, mm-hmm. for a living in different, in different ways, there are some great metrics that the technology tools give you. And you, you referenced that a little bit earlier about what turned this particular person on, how much did they engage on a particular issue, et cetera, et cetera. There are great metrics, but I have also found that people hide behind those metrics. Those are the things that they turn in to say, look at the great job we've done. Yeah. When in fact, did they really create any influence or did they just amplify the noise? Thoughts? Yeah, I, I would tell you, you know, there's, there's, uh, I like to break it down again, going back to my military days. I break it down into, into really four categories of advocates. You have your elite force, your special force, your regular army, and really kind of, you have sort of everybody else. <laughs> but that elite group and that special forces are really the ones you concentrate the most on because that gets rid of that. Uh, if you know that there's people, for instance, that, hey, I'm willing to go and attend or even host a fundraiser. Hey, I'm willing to do a facility tour. Uh, hey, I'm willing to sit in on that meeting. You know they're in that elite to, to special forces class. And that elite class is where people have those specific relationships. And typically those people are the people who know who to know. Yeah. They, they know who to know, but they also, and this is why they're so important, is they become your recruiters. That's right. You know, a lot of times we spend so much time thinking, how do I recruit somebody? How do I get somebody involved? You've got some people who are your best storytellers. Every organization has them. They are the ones that can tell the story and they can tell it with passion. They can tell it with experience. And so when you find those few, and there's not usually a lot of them, but you find those few and you begin to amplify their voice, you don't have to amplify yours. Um, right. you know, that's that's the beauty of, of recruiting through another person, a citizen architect or whatever organization, whatever you would call it in your organization. They become like what we were in the military, the person who goes around with the class A uniforms on and the, um, you know, they have everything just right. They're your best recruiting billboard. They're the people that can talk about how great this experience was, how I know these people now, how they recruiter. Excellent. Excellent. Um, What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of the word advocacy? Hmm. It's, it's, it's interesting. The word that comes to mind is voice. Uh, And the reason I would say voice is because when you're an advocate and I don't like, again, it can be a stop sign up to whatever uh, the voice of the person that speaks with authority is the advocate because they have both the ability and the experience to say, I know how to get this done, or I'm willing to do what it takes to get this done. And I'll never forget this a long time ago, when I first got in this business, somebody told me it's, it's point blank. If you wanna know what good advocacy is, the best strategy for advocacy is the most committed wins. And when I heard that, it, you know, it, it kind of stuck with me because it's basically, we know this from working with Congress, just because you introduce a bill doesn't mean it's going to get passed in two years. We've talked about that before. I worked on a, a bill a long time ago where we got it to uh, the point where it came up for a um, it, it came up for a voting committee. That thing had been trying to get there for eight years. 
and we'd finally gotten it to where it was ready. So the most committed voice that keeps speaking it over and over, not so much louder, but consistently, that's the advocate. So that's, so, so those are the people that have created the relationships that see people year in and year out, that have those relationships that are long-term, that aren't walking away from the table. And I think one of the things that we find often uh, in people that don't understand the process is, well, wait a minute, there was a, you know, so-and-so wrote a bill, you know, why do we have to, A, bring it up again in the next Congress? They don't understand that process of it. But, you know, why did it just get a vote one way or the other, up or down? And they don't realize that there's 13, 14,000 bills at the federal level that, that get written every year and sometimes written in a way just to help keep the voice down because we did that for you. Uh, you know, and people need to know and understand all those things. So we're getting close to the end here. <clears throat> what are your biggest challenges in your job? Well, you know, I, I, I actually phrase it another way these days. I say, what keeps me up at night? And uh, what can I do to make sure I get some sleep? <laughs> so, you know, I would probably say just making sure uh, that we get more people in our advocacy programs involved. Uh, you know, you, you, you know, some people have a threshold saying 20% more, 40% more is good, whatever, whatever. And it depends obviously on the issue and everything going on. But what I, I find uh, that, you know, for me, it's about what can I do more to get them more interested, not just engaged. And, and, and there's a difference. You know, the engagement is the final thing where they click the button and do whatever you're asking. But it's keeping their, uh, their interest with all the noise that's out there, all the different news outlets, all the different other things that are out there that spit out information that sometimes is truthful, sometimes not. And it, it, you, you find sometimes that people have an, ad, uh, an, an opinion about advocacy before they even get to it. So really it's trying to keep their, them focused and make us or, or make any advocacy program for that matter, the source of truth. And that's what kind of keeps me thinking is, uh, you know, that's a big challenge is how do we become that source of truth, not just information, but truth that a person can depend on to find out what they really need to know. Yeah, uh, that, That's hard to do in this day and age. And we all realize and take into account that there are a thousand other things happening in their lives. And so how do you rise above that without being the pest and, 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 and uh, literally creating problems, more problems than uh, solving by the way you go about reaching them and, and staying in touch with them. Indeed. So time has flown. And in fact, I think I got to about half of my questions. Uh, and you, you've been absolutely great. Is there anything else you'd really like to add? Uh, well, a couple of things. Number one, um, if you're in this space, if you're new to this space, I love talking to young folks. This is one of the most, um, you, you, the, the journey that this will take you on in your life will be something, if you stay in it long enough, ups and downs, you'll find that you'll get to where you want to get to, but more importantly, you will experience things you never experienced before, see people you've never seen, been, be, to, be in places. I, I started thinking about working in this field, believe it or not, when I was 12 years old. And it has fulfilled pretty much everything I wanted to do in it. And it's just because I just tried to show up 
and stay consistent. So I would talk to the young folks that are getting in this profession and say that's the case. To the ones that are my age, um, in their mid to late 40s have been in this thing a while, I'd say don't get jaded. Uh, it, after this year especially and last year with the elections and everything, it's hard. It, you can get to the point where you're just burnt out. And I would speak to them and just say, remember what got you involved in this in the first place and go back to that right now. Whenever there's a crisis in my life, I want to go back to the source of why I got involved in what I'm doing or whatever. Did that all the times when I was going through army training. But you go back to why you got involved. That's what I would probably talk to people who are just getting in and people who are my age that are a little bit more into this and trying to figure out if they actually still want to do this stuff. You know, that was superb. And I thank you for addressing both the new people and the people that have fought the fight and been in the battle for a long time. And uh, the, the trenches get muddy and bloody, and uh, we sometimes lose sight of the fact of uh, why we took on this endeavor in the first place. And I greatly, I greatly, greatly appreciate those, those comments and wise words of wisdom. So how can people reach you or the American Institute of Architects? Sure. So there's a lot more. Our organization, which I will just say, it, it's been a pleasure to work with my colleagues and and to learn from them and to help them in, in the different ways. Uh, but to find out more about our organization, I'd say just go to AIA.org or you can contact me uh, directly if you've got any questions or anything. Uh, it's D-A-V-O-N-G-R-A-Y at AIA.org. Love to help folks that are in this profession as well. And like I said, it's been a wonderful thing for me. So always happy to help. You know, uh, that's a wrap of today's wonderful conversation with Davon Gray the Senior Director of Advocacy Capacity Development at the American Institute of Architects. Thank you, Davon, for being on the show today, and I wish you nothing but all the best. Thanks so much. I appreciate you for having me. Let's face it. Today's advocacy arena is just plain noisy. Organizations are stretched. You need every advantage to make sure your issue gets the attention it deserves, and your voice heard. The RAP Index is the best way to do just that by finding your stakeholders' relationships and engagement power. Get past the noise. Know who your people know. Go to rapindex.com. That's R-A-P-Index.com. And tell them Roger sent you for a special offer. If you like today's podcast, head over to where you find your podcasts and subscribe to the Voices in Advocacy podcast. A big thank you to today's guest. I appreciate your time and the unwavering passion for advocacy you have. Well, that's it for this episode of Voices in Advocacy. Remember, you have the power to be an effective, influential advocate. Now go out and make it a better world. We hope you enjoyed today's Voices and Advocacy podcast and look forward to you joining us again next week. To learn more about Voices and Advocacy, go to our website, voicesinadvocacy.com.